Hi, my name is Yasmin Cherehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Today's episode is about how to redirect negative chatter and achieve a Zen life with our guest, Srikumar Rao. Dr. Rao works with executives worldwide to achieve quantum breakthroughs in both their personal and professional lives. And I actually learned about Dr. Rao when I was at Columbia Business School over 10 years ago. He had not been teaching at that time, but I learned about him because his class was so epic that people just you know, continued to talk about how wonderful his class was years later. I also learned about him through Mind Valley, which you can check out some of his videos. Dr. Rao has been among the most highest rated and most popular professors of many of the world's top business schools, like I just referenced, and his work has been featured in major media worldwide, and his TED Talk has been viewed by millions on various sites. So I'm just so thrilled to welcome Dr. Rao to the show. So welcome. Thank you, Yasmin. It's my pleasure to be with you today. (laughs) So, uh, Dr. Rao, just to kick it off, why are you so interested in the work of happiness and Zen living? It's something that evolved, Yasmin, because I was passing through a phase in my career where I was feeling pretty burnt out. And uh, I always had the vision of getting up in the morning, you know, brimming with joy and being radiantly alive. And my life wasn't like that. And I began to wonder why it wasn't like that, because on the surface, I had everything that uh, uh, people say they need in order to live a life like that. I was a tenured full professor at a major university. In fact, I was one of only two chaired professors in that university. Uh, I had a wonderful wife, beautiful children. Everything was fine. But uh, I wasn't as radiantly alive as I thought I should be. So that's when I started delving into that, uh, uh, into why and what makes people happy. So what did you find when you went on your journey to discover, you know, this, this kind of, this greater why, this question of why, what was, what was that like for you? Well, it was a journey of discovery and many surprises. And the biggest surprise was that there's nothing you really have to get do or be in order to be happy. In fact, most of the reasons why we're not happy is because we have this notion that we have to get something in order to be happy. I call that the if-then model, and that's how we live our life. If this happens, then I will be happy. And the if could be many, you know, if I had a bigger house, if I had a better spouse, if I had more money in my bank, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If that happens, I will be. That is what I call the if-then model. And the if-then model is fundamentally flawed. It doesn't work. But we never recognize that it's the model that's flawed. We always think that we put the wrong side on the if side of the wrong thing on the if side of the equation. And if we put the right thing, then we will be happy. And uh, unfortunately, many of us never realize that we're making the same error over and over again. So, Dr. Rao, how do you continue to remind yourself of this? Because I think everywhere we look today in culture, there's so many um, comparisons, right? And I think with smartphones, uh, it's it's made it even more difficult to kind of remain um, 
you know, removed from what's happening with others around us. So I, I'm just, you know, curious, like, how do you can, how do you continue to create space in your own life to, to just focus on being here in the moment and be kind of removing yourself from the, the social program? It requires constant effort, Yasmin. A phrase comes to mind, and this is a phrase which I first learned about in a book by Danny Meyer, who's a very famous New York restaurateur. He had uh, more than one Michelin-starred restaurants that were uh, that he ran in uh, New York. And uh, the phrase is constant gentle pressure, and he explains it very well. Uh, if you are maintaining the high standards in your restaurant, you always want to have the salt shaker in the exact center of the table. But everybody conspires to move it off. You know, a customer might bump against the table. Uh, a waiter might, uh, you know, pull the tablecloth a little bit and move it off center. So your job is to always have it in the center. Now, since everybody is conspiring to move it off the center, you have to have constant attention on it to make sure that you put it back on the center. You have to be gentle. You can't scream at the waiter for bumping against the table because then he'll get all upset and, uh, uh, you know, he might uh, move it off in a passive aggressive move. And you have to apply pressure because you've got to have the salt shaker come back there. So that's, if you will, a blueprint for life, for living your life, constant gentle pressure. <clears throat> so you have to remind yourself to observe your mental chatter, not become your mental chatter. And you have to keep repeating that to yourself <clears throat> and keep your attention coming back to that. You're going to fail or you're going to drop off the wagon numerous times. Don't call it a failure. Just pull yourself up and go back to that. So that's what I recommend to everybody in my coaching programs and in my uh, other programs, constant gentle pressure. Mm, I love that so much and so timely. <laughs> I think as, as a lot of us are kind of getting acclimated back out of this, uh, the last year or more of pandemic, I think, you know, we... A lot of us are just maybe going back to the same level of, <laughs> of um, I guess, life that we that we used to have. So uh, you know, it's just an it's an interesting time to sort of remind ourselves of all the things that we've learned in this last year, and to just take take moments uh, to pause and take moments to observe. So I really, really love that and appreciate that so much. It's so simple, you know, just say say to yourself, constant gentle pressure, that's what you have to do. Are you going to fall off? Of course you are, numerous times. Pick yourself up and go back. Constant gentle pressure. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. So, you know, for, for those of us who have this kind of negative chatter, this negative loop uh, that exists, uh, what are some of the tips and strategies that you recommend dealing with that kind of chatter, especially if it's like, let's say the same consistent loop that keeps coming up every single day. How do you deal with those, those types of chatter? Of course, observing is one of them, but is there anything else that, that you... Observing is far and away the most powerful, Yasmin. Keep observing your mental chatter. Mental chatter is neither good nor bad. It just is. Imagine that it's a beautiful sunny day and you're out in the field, uh, out on a grassy knoll, and you're lying down and uh, looking at the cloud, looking at the sky above, and you see clouds in the sky. 
and you shut your eyes and open them 10 minutes later and those clouds have gone and there are other clouds in the sky. Mental chatter is like that. They come, they go, it's no big deal. Your problem isn't that you have mental chatter, even mental chatter that you you call negative. The problem is you identify with your mental chatter instead of observing your mental chatter. When you observe your mental chatter, you know that you are not your mental chatter. Mental chatter exists, it's going around, but you're not the mental chatter, so you can observe it as you would be observing a ball game or a movie. Constantly remind yourself of that. That is the challenge. But observing mental chatter is far and away the best and most powerful way of dealing with it, because when you're the observer of the mental chatter, you are not feeding it energy, and it no longer has the power to drag you to places you don't want to go. I love the analogy of watching it like a movie. <laughs> I think that's, you know, it depersonalizes it in, in some way, you know, when you're watching it, as opposed to feeling like that it, it's you, you know, the, these... Uh, these... You are not your mental chatter. <laughs> have that have made on a T-shirt and wear it. <laughs> So, uh, Dr. Rao, why do you think so many people are feeling so disengaged today? I mean, look at the stats. A lot of people are not feeling excited or motivated to go to work. And you spent so many years, uh, you know, many decades uh, talking to clients and, and working with people in corporate companies. And so I'm just curious, like, what are some themes that you've seen uh, on why people feel so disengaged? Because we're making a big mistake, Yasmin. Uh, when I taught at business schools, I used to have an exercise called the ideal job exercise, in which I would ask persons, you know, are you engaged at work? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, what do you need to have to be engaged at work? And what do you need to have so that you'll be fully passionate and get up in the morning and, you know, can't wait to get to work? And as you can imagine, you know, they put up a whole bunch of stuff. You know, here's how much money I'm making. This is how big my office is. This is how deep the carpeting is in my office. This is how much I travel. This is the kind of person my boss is. This is the type of persons my colleagues are, and so on and so forth. And my answer always would be wrong. First of all, the exact concatenation of circumstances you put down probably doesn't exist. And second, even if it did exist and you were plugged into it, it would probably take just a few weeks for you to be as miserable again <laughs> as you are now. This is what persons don't understand. Passion does not exist in the job. Meaning does not exist in the job. It exists in you. And if you don't find a way to ignite it within yourself right where you are, you're not going to find it outside. But we are constantly looking for meaning, purpose, and so on outside. It doesn't exist outside. It exists inside. And our job is to ignite it within ourselves right where we are. But the funny thing is, when you do that, you'll be surprised at how fast the external world rearranges itself to suit the new person that you're becoming. Oh, I love that so much. Uh, you're very quotable, <laughs> Dr. L. Yeah, you know, I think um, we're trying to make sense of our life based on the external world, but you're right. I mean, every time that I have found a deeper connection to self, 
uh, my external world actually follows suit. And so it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's imagine Yasmin that you and the universe are in a dance and when you're in a dance, you, when you lead differently, your partner doesn't have a choice, but to follow differently. Let me repeat that. When you're in a dance and you lead differently, your partner doesn't have a choice but to follow differently. So you and the universe are in a dance, an intimate dance. And when you take a different step, the universe doesn't have any choice but to follow. So what are some of the ways that people are blocking their happiness today? Is it is it because people are not spending time connecting to themselves like what is what, what are some of the ways that we we block our happiness and the principal ways we make our happiness dependent on something i will be happy when this happens i will be happy if this happens and everything you need to be happy is right within you and i can prove it to you can you recall any time in your life when you saw a scene of such spectacular beauty that it took you outside of yourself to a place of great calm and serenity? Yeah, oh, yeah. All the, all the time in Northern California when I'm hiking, <laughs> hiking exactly. in the Redwoods. Most people can. And the question I have is, why did you feel that great peace and serenity? And you'll find the answer always is, is at that instant, somehow you accepted the universe exactly as it was. You didn't want it to be different. And when you accepted the universe exactly as it was and you weren't placing your demands on it as this is the way it should be, then the happiness that's an innate part of you, that's inbuilt into you, emerged and I know that's true because you can still feel it, remember it after all those day, days, weeks, or years uh, after the event that you just remembered. I'm saying that your life right now is every bit as perfect. But you are resisting some part of it with all your might. No, no, this is not the way it's got to be. This is the way it's got to be. And in that resistance, you are creating you're buying into the if-then model. And as I pointed out earlier, the if-then model is fundamentally flawed. That's how we learn to be unhappy. Mm. Yeah, so powerful. Uh, Dr. Rao, I was thinking about this point um, you made in a video I, I watched online where you spoke about how for most of us who are goal-oriented, we are more concerned about accomplishing a goal, you know, in business, for example, we want to get to X revenue, we want to achieve this type of metric. And I think what you spoke about, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, you spoke about how it's more important to be in a place of alignment. And really, the question more is, how are you feeling when you're attaining your goal? Can you speak more about that? Because I just thought that was such a powerful point. Yeah, here's the mistake most of us make, Yasmin. We live our lives the following way. I set a goal for myself. I tried very hard to accomplish the goal. I accomplished the goal. Bingo, life is a blast. Or I set a goal for myself, and I tried very hard to accomplish the goal, but I failed. Life sucks. 
So we live our lives like that, oscillating between elation and despair, and we tend to spend too much time at the despair end of the spectrum. It is a lousy way to live. There is a better way, and the better way is set a goal for yourself, but once you've set a goal for yourself, forget about the goal. Instead, pour all of your emotional energy into what are the actions that I have to undertake in order to meet my goal. When you do that, two things happen. Number one, you actually begin to enjoy the journey. The goal, the objective is a destination, which is a mirage. You get there, you tarry a few minutes, and then you're off somewhere else. The journey is with you always. The journey is the only thing you have. And in our obsession with our goals, we miss the journey. And here is the paradox. The more you don't particularly care whether you reach the objective or not, the higher the probability that you will actually reach the objective. It's a little bit like if you're in a negotiation, the strongest position you will ever hold is when you are genuinely prepared to walk away. Let me repeat that. When you're in a negotiation, you're never in a stronger position than when you are genuinely prepared to walk away. It works exactly the same way in life. You have a goal, you try your level best to reach the goal, but it's perfectly okay if you do or not. And when you do that, the probability you'll get to your goal goes up. But there is another learning embedded here. The mistake we make is we think that setting a goal and trying our level best to achieve the goal, the benefit of doing that is achieving the goal. Wrong. The benefit of setting a goal and trying our level best to achieve the goal is the learning and growth that happen in us and to us as we try our level best to achieve the goal. If we actually achieve the goal, that is a bonus. If we don't achieve the goal, the learning and growth have already happened, so we're ahead of the game. It's a no-lose proposition. Why do you think so many people don't want to fail. I mean, you know, or don't want to suffer. I think that's kind of like the interesting piece in our culture that we haven't really, you know, talked about, uh, at least in the mainstream, like why, you know, why there is, it feels like a lot of people have so much shame when it comes to failing. And I think some of the best inventors failed thousands of times before they were able to achieve, um, you know, success. And so it's just an interesting thing. Like, how do you, how, how do you um, coach people on their fear of failure? Uh, I don't say that anything is a failure. Everything is an event. It's in our head that we label something as this is a bad thing. This is a failure. You know, let's look at a child walking. You know, typically happens between 11 and 13 months. So the child gets up, tries to take a step, falls down and balls. And the mother comes up and kisses the spot and makes it well and goes back. And the child takes another step and falls down, cries again. The mother comes a second time. The third time, the mother might not be in that much of a hurry to come. And the child doesn't cry quite as loudly. And he gets up, tries again. And uh, within a couple of days, he's walking all around the place and upsetting your table with objedar, <laughs> and you move to an entirely new uh, phase of parenting. 
Now, imagine that each time a child falls down, if you had to say, oh boy, the poor thing, it fell down again, must be depressed, let's get some counseling for it, it failed again. <laughs> Ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It's exactly the same way. You try a bunch of stuff. Some will work out, some will not work out. If it doesn't work out, it's fine. You go on to the next thing. It's only a failure if you call it a failure. Edison had a great way of looking at it. You know, someone one asked, once asked him, you know, it took you 10,000 tries before you found out that it was a tungsten filament that would be glow in a light bulb. You know, how did you cope with so much failure? And I, Edison thought about it for a while and said, there were no failure. I now know 10,000 things that don't work. <laughs> I love that so much. It's just a reminder I think we all need in culture today. This you have to think about. Don't define it as a failure. <laughs> you know, say I try something, some worked, some didn't work, and that's life. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I generally don't have as much of a problem with that, but I think a lot of people I know are just scared of, of launching things or putting things out in public. I, I, there's just a, a fear of criticism and it's so interesting. You know, I've written one book, I'm actually about to publish another book and there's, it's such a terrifying thing to put a book out in the world for the first time. And also maybe the second time for some people, but I think you just get used to, to being on a, a, a platform where people can say what they want. And, and I think that's scary for a lot of people. Cause I think in culture or at least Western culture, it doesn't feel like people are as transparent, um, about what they're feeling and what they're thinking. So to be able to kind of do that anonymously with someone's work feels, you know, it's just, it's it's tough. Um, yeah, I'm just curious, how do you deal with that? <laughs> Which brings me to the other thing. You know, every time you get unhappy because somebody pants your work, you're basically putting your well-being in the hands of somebody else. And that somebody else may be anonymous and may be a total jerk. Why would you ever hand over the keys of your well-being to a, a total jerk? Why would you do that? But we do all the time. And the reason we do, frankly, Yasmin, is we've never bothered to think about it enough. And it's been ingrained in us because we see everybody else around us doing the same thing. It's like lemmings walking off the edge of a cliff. If you think about it, why would you let somebody else, probably somebody you really don't care a great deal about, why would you let that person's opinion influence your well-being? Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> and the way out of that is to simply think about it and see that that's what you're doing and what an incredibly stupid thing it is to do. Yeah, so powerful. Um, you spoke about uh, this this parable or story called Good, Bad, Who Knows? <laughs> and I, I love that. I was wondering if you could share that with our audience. Yeah, this is actually when I in my programs and in my uh, with my coaching clients, uh, many tell me that this is one of the most powerful lessons that they got from that, and it actually comes from an ancient Sufi tale, and it talks about a man and his son, and they lived in a beautiful valley, and they were very happy, but they were also dirt poor. And the man got sick and tired of being dirt poor, and he decided he was going to become rich. And the way he was going to become rich was by breeding horses. So he bought a stallion. 
didn't have enough money to buy a stallion, so he borrowed very heavily from the neighbors. And the very day he bought a stallion, it kicked the top bar loose from the paddock and ran away. And all the neighbors came around and said, you were going to become a rich man, but your stallion has run away, and you still owe us money. You are screwed. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The, the stallion fell in with a group of wild horses, which were browsing close to where the man was, and he was able to entice them into the paddock, which he had repaired, so escape was no longer possible. So all of a sudden now he had his uh, stallion back plus a group of wild horses, and by the standards of that village, that made him a wealthy man. And the neighbors came around and said, we thought fortune, we thought that uh, you were destitute, but fortune has smiled upon you. How lucky you are. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The man and his son started to break the horses so they could sell them on the market. And one of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg. And it broke and it healed crooked. And the neighbors came around again. He was such a fine young lad. And now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How terrible. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That summer, the king of the country declared war on a neighboring country. And press gangs moved through the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young men. But this man's son was spared because he had a crooked leg. And the neighbors had tears in their eyes as they rolled around. We don't know if we'll ever see your son, our sons alive, but your son is still with you. How fortunate you are. And he shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it goes on like that forever. Now, think about it. Have you in the past ever had something happen in your life, Yasmin, that at the time it happened, you thought this was terrible? But looking back upon it, you can say, hey, that wasn't so terrible after all, or maybe even that was actually good. Most people can recall many such instances. I remember I was speaking before the Global Executive Summit of the Entrepreneurs' Organization, and uh, one of the persons, uh, one of the attendees raised his hand at that time, so I acknowledged him, and he said, Professor Rao, I have an excellent example of what you're talking about. He was a graduate from one of the top engineering schools in India, got a master's from Stanford, got a job with a high-tech company, and was looking forward to building his career, but he had an immigration problem as a result of which he was forced to leave the country. He thought his life was over, his professional life. Among other things, he had student debt. And when you have student debt in dollars and you're earning in rupees, you're not in a very good place. But he said, Professor Rao, as a result of my being forced out of the country, I met this wonderful lady who's now my wife. I started a company with two of my engineering school buddies, and it's going great. All my clients are in America. I come to America at least six times a year. I live a picture-perfect life, and none of this would have happened if I had not been forced out. So think about if something happened in the past that at the time it happened, you thought was terrible, but you can now look back upon it and say, hey, that wasn't terrible, or maybe even that was good. Is it possible that what you're today about to label bad, is it possible that in X years it could turn out to be good? Is it possible? Just Asking yourself that question will move you to a different emotional domain. And if you then ask yourself the next question, is there anything I can proactively do to actually make it good? And you move seamlessly from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. Mm, that's so, so powerful. I love that. 
Uh, yeah, I think for so many of us, I think some of our at the time, things that we thought were the worst things that ever happened to us turned out to be the best things <laughs> that happened to us. So yep. yeah, yeah. I yeah, a lot of my big life decisions happened on the precipice of a, you know, what I thought at the time was was terrible news. So so yeah, I I love that. Good, bad, who knows? <laughs> That's gonna be my response to anything in life. It's very powerful, yes. And it's so easy to remember. Good thing, bad thing, who knows? There's a another um, uh, guest that we had on the show, uh, Simone Millicis from Axis Consciousness. And the founder of Axis Consciousness, Gary, talks also about this this point in a, in a different way. And he, he says, instead of saying like, why am I not getting this? Or why isn't this happening to me? Like he turns the question around and says, what's right about this I'm not getting? And I love that so much. Like, so if, sometimes like if things are getting to be ridiculously hard and should be simple, I'm like, okay, what's right about this? I'm not getting, <laughs> maybe this is not meant to be, you know, and I'm saving myself a lot of time and energy and money not to, to go down this road. Right. So I, I love that. Uh, good, bad, who knows? So uh, I'm just going to call you Sri Kumar. Um, Dr. Rao, you have this uh, phrase in your email signature, what is mine when there is no me? And I'm going to mispronounce it. It's by Nagar Nagarunha. Nagarjuna. Okay. Yes, he was a famous okay. Buddhist philosopher. Nagarjuna. Now, this, now we're getting really deep, Yasmin. <laughs> we, have, we make a fundamental mistake, and the fundamental mistake we make is we identify ourselves with a set body-mind-intellect complex and say, that is me. In reality, that is not who we are at all. That is a role that we are playing. Who we are is pure consciousness, unfettered by uh, our particular uh, notion that this is a body that I'm in. When we recognize that, we recognize that all the things that we say, this is mine, really aren't. We are temporary custodians because we are not that body-mind-intellect complex because that is in time, in space, it will grow old, it will die, it will disappear. So we are merely trustees. So what are we going out there grasping for stuff and you know, doing going through all kinds of contortions to accumulate more toys. It's completely, completely a waste of time and a waste of our energy. But to really recognize that, you have to be embedded firmly in the notion and recognize that all of this is a passing show and one day it will disappear. One day everything that you have striven so painfully to acquire will be stripped from you, Yasmin. Do you remember that? Do you agree with that? I completely agree with that, but I I don't know that every day. I, I have to remind myself of that. <laughs> we have to live in that consciousness that each day is a gift. We are not this body-mind-intellect complex that we think we are, because that is going to be dis that is going to disappear. It's in time and space. Anything that is in time and space. Where, what is it the poet says, where moth doth eat and rust doth corrode will go. So when you have that in there, it gives you a wonderful perspective on the things that you're bothered by now. 
Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, it's a it's a powerful reminder um, that I think we get so attached to what's happening in our life, and I think the reality is one day we will all die, and uh, I think we uh, we tend to forget that. Yes. There's a beautiful verse from uh, Shakespeare uh, when, uh, uh, remember I told you that we really don't have anything in control over uh, what happens. So the conspirators murdered Julius Caesar. And the reason they murdered Julius Caesar is because they thought that they would rule Rome uh, after Caesar was dead. But nothing is under control, and two things happened that uh, they hadn't figured on. One, Mark Antony got up and gave his famous friends, Romans, countrymen speech, and that got the general populace riled up against the conspirators. And second, Octavian Caesar gathered up a legion and came after them. And uh, they were defeated at the Battle of Philippi. But before that happened, uh, Brutus was regretting his role in the uh, as uh, the stabbing of Julius Caesar because when Julius Caesar said "et to brute," that struck home to him. So when Cassius comes to ask him for something, he declines. And as Cassius was leaving, Brutus says, "And whether we shall meet again, I know not. Therefore, our everlasting farewell take, forever and forever farewell, Cassius." If we should meet again, why we shall smile? If not, why then this parting was well made? If you think about it, anytime you have a meeting, anytime you have a parting, do you ever really know if you'll see the other party again? Look at what just happened in Miami. There were people who went out for a walk and they had this beautiful apartment and when they came back there was no apartment and their spouse and children were gone yeah yeah um my uh my brother actually has a, a friend who was visiting her parents in that same building and just heartbreaking we really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow so if you have that in mind, every time when uh, you're, even if you're doing something mundane, like going to the office and you kiss your husband or your wife goodbye, and you say, you know, I don't know if I really will see this person again. And if you do that, what happens to all of the petty irritations that you're carrying around with you, the, you know, things that you're riled about, they all go away, Right. It's a very intense ex uh, exercise. In fact, this is an exercise in my course. And it's so intense that you can't do it all of the time, but you can do it some of the time. And when you do, you'll change it. You'll find that it changes the nature of your relationships and your interactions. And a lot of the stuff, the baggage that you're carrying about, carrying around with you simply drops. Mm, that's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, I love that uh, that mental frame of just not knowing whether we're going to see a person again. And just also, I think it makes it a richer experience to spend time yeah, together. It's such a beautiful way of putting it. All you got to do is, and whether we shall meet again, I know not. And that is so true. Whether we shall meet again, I know not. There is always a last time for everything. There is a last time for you to use the particular bowl that you use for your cereal. There is a last time for you to visit a particular country. There always is. 
Yeah, I love that. I um, a quote that also speaks to me for for this uh, same sentiment is uh, Thomas Merton, and he says, uh, "This day will never come again." I just love yeah. that so much. Like this this moment, this day, where we're at right now, will never happen again. So absolutely <laughs> right. Yes. So, uh, Dr. Rao, can you tell us, like, how do you uh, kind of operate in the world and protect your time? Like, you know, a lot of people right now are in this rat race or it feels like everywhere I look, people are just consumed by work, uh, especially as you get to more senior levels. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just so, you know, taken back by where we're at in society today. I think this idea of working hard, um, or working many hours is, uh, is kind of like the, um, reflection of working hard. And I, I think that to me, it feels that that doesn't feel right. Uh, I don't think that we were made to just, you know, work endlessly and be connected to technology <laughs> nonstop. <laughs> I, I don't think, and no one's happy doing that. So, so what is, you know, what do you think is like a, a, a decent or a um, a work schedule that feels comfortable for most people, especially as you've you've coached them. Like, what have you discovered? What I've discovered is that it's a very good idea to do your work, but do your work knowing that it is part of a great game that you're playing, and the notion that you have to reach a particular goal, and that is what makes life a success, is completely fallacious. And more and more people are discovering that, which is why we have so many incidences, breakdowns, and, uh, you know, nervous breakdowns, and so on. So the way out of that, frankly, is to invest in the process, do not invest in the outcome. Pour your emotional energy into what you have to do. Recognize that the goal you're striving for may or may not happen, you don't have control, and uh, enjoy each day. What I try to tell all of my coaching clients is that each day is your life in miniature. You, you are born when you wake up in the morning, and you die when you go to bed at night. And in between is the only time you have, so make the most use of it that you possibly can. Beautiful, beautiful. What sort of things have surprised you the most in this journey? That's a very interesting question. Let me ponder that for a moment. I guess the most interesting thing, and and actually I discovered it a while back, and now I've made my peace with it, and now it's normal, but initially it was a huge revelation to me. And the revelation to me was that we do not live in a real world. We think we do, but we do not. Or let me modify that. We do not live in the real world. We live in a real world. We think we live in the real world, but we're actually living in a real world. And this is actually very, very, very liberating because if we live in the real world and we don't like it, we're screwed, grin and bear it. But if we live in a real world and we don't like it, we can deconstruct the parts of it that are not working and build it up again. 
And we can do that over and over and over again. This is a rest of our life procedure. And that's what a big chunk of my course is about also. So that was a revelation to me when I first uh, discovered that. Now, as I said, it's, uh, of course, that's the way it is. But it, I remember that it was hugely surprising. And most persons who I coach or come to my programs find that incredibly surprising when they first uh, run across that idea. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I love that. So it gives you agency to be able to change your world if you believe that it's a real world rather than the, the real, real. real world. <laughs> yes. So uh, Dr. Rao, what do you want to tell our listeners about their wellness and well-being? What is like your main takeaway if you have one? My main takeaway is that life is short, and each day that you're not radiantly alive and brimming with joy is a day that's wasted. So if you have that as a goal and say, darn it, I am going to have a perfect day this day, then much of the time you will. It's very simple, Yasmin. Would you like to know how you how to have a terrific day every day? Yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> it's really very simple. You get up in the morning and you decide you're going to have a terrific day. Most of us confuse having a terrific day with two things happening which have nothing to do with having a terrific day. And those two things are stuff should happen that I want to have happen and stuff should not happen that I don't want to have happen. And we don't have any control over either one of those. So if we're smart, what we'll do is we'll get up in the morning and say, I'm going to have a terrific day. And in my terrific day, feces will inevitably drop from the sky. So I'm going to spend a couple of hours of my terrific day cleaning up the feces that will inevitably drop from the sky, and I'll have a terrific time doing it. I love that so much. I completely agree. It's as simple as that. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I think uh, I think that starting the day with that mindset is is so powerful. So thank you for that. And Dr. Rao, where can people find you? Obviously, you have programs, you do coaching, you've got a lot of books, and you've, there's so much content about you on the uh, internet. If people want to Google Sri Kumar Rao, there's, there's a lot to find. But where would you want to po uh, point folks to? Uh, I'd like to point them to my website, which is www.theraoinstitute.com. Perfect. And we will leave that in the show notes. So it's the Rao. So the And if they go there and they click on the button, join the community, then they'll get my blogs and information about my programs and so on. And if they go to YouTube, I have a lot, a lot of articles on my blogs. Uh, I also have a YouTube channel and the link is on my uh, website. So there's a ton of material uh, on me and about me on uh, the internet. So uh, it's very easy to find. Amazing. Amazing. We will leave that in the show notes for people to find it. Dr. Rod, thank you so much for your time. I feel so inspired and so energized after this conversation. And I'm just so grateful that you exist and that you're doing this work and that you're helping so many people. So thank you so much. 
thank you, Yasmin, because you're doing more than your share in terms of spreading the messages that people like to receive, need to receive at this time. And don't don't underestimate the value of doing that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Rao, and to your lovely team. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learn about how to redirect negative chatter and achieve a Zen life with Sri Kumar Rao. You can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness, well-being, and spirituality. Thanks again.